With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt and we thank you as always for joining us. This week we're joined by Iraq War veteran and author of Missionaries in Redeployment, Phil Cly, and the founding partner of GBAO, a top Democratic polling firm, Jim Gerstein. And remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to atpoliticom for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and as I always remind you, don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. Please check out their links in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It's what makes this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, James Carville, uh, this is going to be a great show. Let's first talk about the news of the week. Uh, Derek Chauvin, the cop who murdered George Floyd, found guilty on all counts. We earlier agreed that we don't bring any special expertise uh, to this story. It was a verdict, I think, uh, that was justified, certainly welcomed by many. Um, I think two political points. Uh, one, obviously, how unacceptable any other verdict would have been given that video uh, of him kneeling on uh, on Floyd's neck for, what, nine minutes and 30-some seconds. It was, you're rarely going to get, I think, the kind of proof, the kind of evidence that you're going to get there. And so that that really made it, I think, an open and shut case. I'm sure that Fox News and some others uh, were hoping there'd be some violence afterwards. There's not. Uh, but also, I think the other the other point I would make, again, without any special expertise, is some of the most damning testimony for the prosecution was from police officers. And I don't know that this is an inflection point, and I think we have so so far to go. We There is such a great need for police reform. We had that Professor Harris on a couple months ago. One thing you start with uh, is body cameras. Uh, I mean, that young teenager who took that video uh, was what was sealed that case. And every police officer should have to wear uh, a camera. That's not a panacea, but that'll help. A lot more needs to be done, but at least it's a little bit of a start. Yeah, I had uh, that verdict, and I started the last, after 17 years of teaching in higher ed from Northern Virginia Community College to Tulane LSU. I was, had to start the last class I'll ever do. And I, I, I got to tell you, I was emotionally drained. And I had, because I teach at LSU, I probably have more black students than the average college teacher. And I had some of my class and some of my former students, I talked to them. The thing I felt was just overwhelming relief. I mean, I didn't have my own emotion was, oh, thank God. You know, it's like the test came back negative. And... I, I concur with what you said. I, I think that the Darnella Frazier, I think, was this young woman's name, yep. young girl's name. And 
but for that, we, we probably wouldn't be where we are. And if we wouldn't have known the horror of it, we wouldn't have had the conviction. It had just been something that people said, well, it could have gone either way. You know, he was scared, blah, blah, blah. That police, did, but the video was just so compellingly strong that there was just no way around it. So, right. you know, I, I congratulations. Agree. She, yeah, darn, you're right. She deserves all the credit for that. You know, I also want to, um, I also want to praise Minnesota uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison. I admit I was skeptical uh, that he was the one uh, to bring this case, but he delegated the trial to very able prosecutors, and they had a good case, but they made a good case. And yeah. so I think that the judge was good. Uh, everything worked. And I don't know, some trials maybe shouldn't be televised, but I think this was an important one to be televised. Yeah, I, I looked at the jury. It seemed to be a really good, I read a description of each of the jurors, and it seemed to be a thoughtful jury. But the defense lawyer was, was as good as he could be. Right. I thought the judge was fine. The prosecutors were, were, were really good. I mean, this was not any kind of legal mismatch. And I don't. I think it's going to be upheld on appeal. I do think that it was dumb to announce the twenty-seven million dollars settlement prior to the trial. I don't think an appellate court would overturn because of that. But I, I, I'd like to know the backstory of why they couldn't have the agreement and then announce it after the trial. Yeah, but I don't think it's going to matter. But that that bothered me. Not what Maxine Waters said. First of all, it's very doubtful anybody on the jury even heard it. And it, it's, I, I think it's been a little blown out of proportion. But I, I think it was a well-conducted trial. What, in my view, was a very just verdict by some conscientious jurors. Yeah, I totally agree. I think what Maxine Walters said was unnecessary and stupid, but it's not going to have any effect uh, on the appeal. I think the judge did what judges always do. They say, look, you can appeal. Uh, this case, and he was just able to cite her dumb comments. But it was a, it was yeah. a good day. It doesn't. I, yeah. I, I hope. I hope there are more good days. Uh, James, we need let me, a good day. We, we, you know, we sure do. Um, I'll tell you, there's some. There's one Minnesotan who had a lot of good days and who passed away this week, and that's former Vice President uh, Walter Mondale. I, I, I knew Fritz Mondale for almost a half century. Interviewed him many times. Most recently, in, in the during the 2018. Uh, campaign. He was then 90, uh, vigorous uh, and insightful. But, you know, he personified, whether you agree or disagree with his particular positions, everything that's noble in American politics. The son of a minister uh, didn't have, they, they were struggling growing up, went to the University of Minnesota, only place he could afford, joined the army so he could then afford to go to law school, got into politics because he was inspired by Hubert Humphrey and civil rights. And he lived up to that inspiration for four decades. And I would just say two other things about him. He created the modern vice presidency, a working partnership with the president. Al Gore said you can view the office of vice presidency through two prisms, pre-Mondale and post-Mondale. And he paved the way for Al Gore uh, and others. And I, I would say his selection, look, he, he got clobbered in 1984. He was just trounced. He lost 49 states. But his selection of Geraldine Ferraro, the first woman on a national ticket, I think was really an important touchstone in American politics and paved the way for women uh, who were achieving more and more uh, at the highest levels of government. So I, I'm a, I, I was a huge, huge admirer of Fritz Mondale. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't know him as well as you did. 
But I, I've never heard, and I happen to agree with most all of his policies, honestly, <laughs> what he thought. I probably probably drank from the same ideological cup. But I, he's one of the few people that I've never heard anybody say a bad thing about. All right. Now, of course, I, I know people that, that you know, didn't like his policies or thought he was too you know, pro-government or anything else. But I honestly cannot recall anybody saying anything other than he was a, a, a well-motivated, utterly decent human being. And, but we were lucky to have him in this country. We need more like him. Boy, we sure were. And, you know, he was. He was a, a passionate liberal. He cared about his causes. But when I had lunch with him in 2018, James, as I say, he was 90, but he was incredibly vigorous, and he laid out the liberal agenda, and he, was, uh, he thought that 2018 campaign was being conducted very ably by Democrats. He liked the candidates. But he also warned uh, about that, that rule or ruin uh, left-wing element in his party. So he, he, he wasn't uh, by any means uh, an ideologue. And he... He was nourished in the golden years of the Democratic Farm Labor uh, Party in uh, Minnesota. Hubert Humphrey was the leader. And he, he, you know, Mondale always saw government as an instrument to help people who needed help. Right. Civil rights or housing or child care. And he remained true to that, you know, all of his life. He, he wrote at the end that I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. You sure did, Fritz. And we're a better country because of you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I am so opposed, and it's, 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 it's a too influential wing of the Democratic Party, and it's the faculty lounge in the humanities department at Amherst. That, those, that, that, I don't mean this, that's why I am, any, any of those, like, you know, elite schools that people pay to get in, their faculty lounge lingo is ruining the Democratic Party, and they're too politically stupid to know it. Well, you've moved the faculty lounge from Brown to Amherst, so I guess well, we I can... Well, it doesn't matter. It's going to change. <laughs> well, I'll, put it in, I'll put it in Swarthmore next. It, it, yeah. it, it's irrelevant. It's that kind of thinking that is too pervasive in a Democratic Party and that cost us a lot of, a lot of seats in 2020, it cost us a lot of votes, and it's continuing to hurt us. And these people need to go study medieval languages or whatever the hell they do for a living and stop trying to take over American politics. Well, Fritz Mondale was not a faculty lounge liberal. Uh, he was a people in need liberal, as we both agree. And uh, he, he, I, think, I think he would uh, concur with everything yeah. you've just said. He had a great life, uh, lived to 93. And um, I, I just uh, I feel awful fortunate to have known him. Yeah, Minnesota's lucky to have him. University of Minnesota, I've got a lot, a lot of good friends that went to school there. They've produced some really great people, so. Boy, they sure have. Hey, James, Phil Cly is one of the foremost American authors. At age 31, he won the National Book Award for his much-acclaimed book, Redeployment, a series of short stories about the tragedy and traumas of the Iraq War from the perspective of the soldiers. Uh, after college, he joined the Marine Corps and served four years in Iraq. His latest novel, Missionaries, is on the tragedies of the Colombian Civil War through the perspective of two Colombians and two Americans. Phil, we are really honored to have you with us today. We thank you. 
And I'm going to confess right up front, I haven't read Missionaries yet, but I will, because I read Redeployment, and it was, it knocked my socks off. It was just an, it's an incredible story. You can't stop reading. You give a Thank you. Thank you so much. You give a vivid description of war through those that fought it, and only those probably that can really, really understand it. And I, I just wonder that, that one of the themes that I come away with is it just reinforced this notion of the separation between those who fought, those soldiers like you, and the rest of us in society, uh, which is even, it's even more than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Was that, you know, one of your points in that book? Absolutely. I think it was very important to me, not just because I think, you know, when veterans come back, it's actually very important to, uh, for them to be able to have conversations uh, with people around them to try and have kind of touch points to discuss what they've been through, what they've experienced, what it meant to them. And I wanted to write a book that would, you know, in some ways serve as a bridge uh, between civilians and military. But also, you know, beyond that, you mention how that divide feels like it's grown. And we have, you know, a relatively small all-volunteer force um, there you know it's just a fraction that goes overseas and yet you know we're all citizens we're all responsible uh, ultimately for military policy um, and so i think that thinking very seriously about war about the experience of war uh, how we wage it and how it's uh, felt uh, by the people tasked with with carrying that out is i think you know beyond just something we should understand as human beings trying to you know understand you know think about war. It's something that we need to think about as, as citizens as well. You uh, joined the Marine Corps right out of college, uh, uh, right out of yes. Dartmouth. Not very many of your Dartmouth classmates, I suspect, did that. Why did you do it? Because we were at war. Yeah. Um, you know, I always, my, my family always believed in, in, in public service. My mother had worked in international medical aid. My uh, father had been in the Peace Corps. Uh, my maternal grandfather had been a career diplomat. So, you know, in high school, I wanted to become a diplomat, right? But the big thing that we were doing when I was in college was, you know, we were in Afghanistan, and then we were soon going to be in Iraq, and it seemed like that was the best way to serve my country. You wrote about, uh, or you wrote in the novel, um, uh, or in the story stories about someone, uh, said that there was no Vicksburg, there was no Omaha Beach uh, in uh, Iraq, a translator for the Americans, said he was a professor before the Americans came in and destroyed my country. Is that your view of the Iraq war now? I think it's very hard to look at the Iraq war um, and, 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 and come away with the idea that it was a good idea in its, in its conception or in its execution. Um, I think that there were a sort of series of strategic disasters. And of course, there were moral disasters as well. I think the fact that we resorted to torture um, was a, a moral stain and, and also uh, in many ways a strategic self-inflicted wound um, because you know one of the things when you're waging wars of this sort asymmetric wars against a population that hides uh, among you know among the everyday people um, if you act like cruel barbarians um, then you will alienate precisely the people who you need to have on your side. James? Oh, well, Phil, I, I, I was a Marine Corps veteran, Vietnam-era veteran of the Marine Corps. I was enlisted. Uh, you were a Marine 
I know right. you're a corporal, well, I right? I a, a Marine Corps officer, and you actually went to Iraq. But according to the Wikipedia, if it's to be believed, you didn't have the most stressful deployment that you could have. But okay, no, I did not. But I was a. I was. You a just staff did officer. what you did. What I did. You did what you were told, and tried to do it as best. <laughs> yeah. I, this is just <laughs> like I'm talking about Afghanistan. The 21st century warfare in the United States has been an utter goddamn disaster. We, we lost two wars. We yep. just lost in Afghanistan. We're, just walk, we're walking away, lost. I, I went to Afghanistan. I advised the, the now president. When I advised him, he lost the election. So let's be honest. <laughs> he came back after, after I left, but I, I was in Afghanistan. And no one gives a shit. We just walked away no. from a 20-year war of which everybody, the whole Council on Foreign Relations, the, the editorialists, everybody was all beating the goddamn war drums. And it was, we, just, we lost Iraq. We lost. The New York Times had bullshit weapons amassed. Nobody pays any price for anything. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm ranting, but I'm, I'm going to give it to you and let you talk about it. But I'm like pissed off. We lost. We lose wars. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about um, there's a book by a Soviet journalist um, called The Hidden War. And he tells a story about the latter days of the Soviets in Kabul. Um, this story that was floating around about a soldier who got a concussion and suffered amnesia. And when he woke up, his squad mates tried to explain to him who he was, what was going on, but the guy couldn't get past um, one question. He kept asking over and over again, what are we doing in Afghanistan? And no one could give him a definite answer, right? And I feel like in many ways, that has been the, the condition for, for troops overseas uh, in Afghanistan for a while now. I mean, I remember uh, Bing West quoting a, a Marine in Sangin province, which was horribly violent, right? Uh, you know, we sent Marines into the Lion's Maw. Uh, one of the platoons um, in 3-5 suffered 50% casualties. Uh, that battalion suffered, you know, five dead on, I think, the first two days uh, of their deployment. And one of the Marines, even at the time, just sort of said, this war is stupid, so what? My country's in it, right? Um, I remember talking to a Special Forces guy talking about how you know, every year in Afghanistan, they'd go to the same, uh, same valleys, the same mountains. They weren't building roads or schools or anything like that. They were just doing interdiction mission after interdiction mission, trying to get into big, gnarly firefights because they were special forces guys. They were winning. They were just chewing up these like kids that the Taliban was sending against them because that's what they are. They're kids, right, um, who get caught up in this. And he said, you know, for a while, I wondered why the Taliban was doing this, right, because we were always, you know – killing a lot of the enemy uh, or a decent number of the enemy. And he said, in a certain point, I realized, oh, they're doing it because they can, right? Uh, and we have had a kind of, I think, strategic drift um, for a while in Afghanistan. And, and what we, even what we were, we were supposed to be doing kept changing. You know, in 2001, we were doing, you know, comprehensive and relentless operations to drive the terrorists out of Afghanistan, right? And then in 2009, when Obama was surging 30,000 troops, that was, you know, because we were going to build an Afghan capacity that can allow for a responsible transition of forces out. And that didn't happen either. And then in 2017, under Trump, we're there to you know, obliterate ISIS, crush al-Qaeda, and prevent the Taliban from taking over the country. Well, that hasn't happened either, right? And now you've got people saying that 
um, oh, you know, well, you know, if we pull out, it's going to be very bad for Afghan women. Well, that's true. It is. But that's not why we've been fighting there for 20 years. You know, there, there, there are folks who are arguing, you know, I saw the journalist Eli Lake saying that, you know, if we don't stay in Afghanistan, other countries are going to wonder if the United States is going to have their backs as if our presence in Afghanistan is some sort of, you know, advertisement for how great America is and how you should be on their side because they know how to do things well. Um, and then, you know, there, there are other folks who are saying, well, you know, we, we've had troops forever in, in, in Japan. We've had troops forever in, in Germany with, uh, you know, why can't we have troops for a long-term presence in, in Afghanistan? It's like, well, because <laughs> Afghanistan's not freaking Germany because, you know, Swabian rebels aren't moving in on Hanover, shutting down beer halls and trying to force everybody to wear lederhosen. It's not the same goddamn so, country. I, I got so much I want to talk to you about, but one of the things I want to talk about is the seductiveness of war. At least that after Fredericksburg it is good that it's yeah. so horrible. We would grow to love it so much. So, or Patton, right? And <laughs> right, so right. I worked. I worked for Santos in Colombia, and he told me a, a big problem was if you had peace, all of these young people carrying machine guns had no other skills, and and people make an enormous amount of money off a of war. All right, and, and and officers get rank faster when there's war. War helps a lot of people, not the E4, you know, slugging a rifle around, but that the, and it, a lot of journalists get to cover it. You know, it's a it's it's a kind of exciting thing at some level of people, and once you start it, you you, you have to constantly feed the beast. You know, one of my um. One of my buddies was going was was set up for a deployment to Afghanistan, right? And he had a, a reserve unit, a uh, uh, U.S. Army reserve, and he'd done a couple deployments, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and then last minute their deployment got canceled, and he said that was his hardest moment as a leader, right? Because there were all these guys who were actually looking forward <laughs> to going overseas. They were looking <laughs> right. forward to you know putting real life on hold, right? Because like. Just being right. a human being, you know, raising a family, all that's, you know, all just the, the, the grind of it, the difficulty of it uh, is, is wearying. And, and, and there's a kind of clarity that folks would have overseas. And also, you know, they could tell their spouse, you know, you, know, you solved that problem. I'm in, you know, I'm in Afghanistan. I can't deal with it. Right. And, and so he said, you know, that was actually his hardest moment as a commander dealing with the fact that they weren't going to get to go back to, to, you know, uh, to Afghanistan. Right. right. Um, and it is, it, there's, there's a real appeal. You know, I mean, it would be easy. It would be easy if it were just all horror. Right. right. Um, but the, right. the, the experience that people have, the, the kind of camaraderie that people have uh, overseas. I mean, they're, they're, and also, I mean, there are truly kind of impressive and beautiful things um, that you see on a right. deployment. Right. Um, and it's hard to disentangle right. that from, you know, these sort of broader questions of, <laughs> do we actually have a policy that makes sense, right? If we're going to be killing people overseas, we'd better be doing it for a goddamn good reason. And it better actually, you know, clearly be something that will result in a better situation for America and the world. And I don't think that we've had that. You know, hey, uh, Al, more than President Clinton, he never said this, but I always say, and Chris, it was kind of observation. Well, he was never a wartime president, as if that's some great, glorious designation, right? I, 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 and I, I, I'm just kind of surprised. And of course, I'm a Democrat. I always have been. But 
if we could have Eisenhower run our foreign policy in perpetuity, I think we'd have been better off. <laughs> okay. I, 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 I'm just telling you, my beef with this whole thing is there's too much affection and romanticizing of war among too many people. Yeah. And, 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 and war is some sort of kind of proving ground for your manhood, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> rather yeah. than doing well, something. Uh, Phil, right. that is okay. that is among the the many wonderful things about redeployment because you can't read that and think that it's all glory and uh, uh, I mean it's it's there are excruciating stories in there which you capture so brilliantly. Let me I, we we really are going to read missionaries. I promise. You can't read redeployment. <laughs> no, I'm gonna. <laughs> no, I, I I it is. But I, I you know I talked to a very good friend the other day who has spent a lot of time in Colombia, and mm -hmm. she praises your book. And she's here's what she said about it. She said it's many layered and it portrays the cruelty of the Colombian uh, insurrection. Uh, and also the ignorance and arrogance of the gringos coming to Colombia for their own selfish interest and the basic thoughtfulness uh, of the upper class Colombians. You agree? <laughs> that is, that is a, um, well, it's very nice. I think that the, um, the upper class Colombian that I, that I portray is definitely thoughtful. Um, but that doesn't always mean that he's making the right decisions, right? I think that one of the complicated things, and, and the reason that I focused on Colombia, you know, a lot of people don't know, you know, Colombia has been the largest recipient of U.S. military aid in the Western Hemisphere since the end of the Clinton administration, right? And a lot of sort of tactics, right, um, and, and, and personnel uh, will sort of go back and forth between, you know, Colombia and Afghanistan, Colombia and Iraq, uh, the seventh, seventh group. Seven Special Forces Group has been been doing that shuffle for a long time, and then there are things like targeted assassination, right? Sort of new methods of doing um, targeted killing that, in some ways, are based on things that happened during the hunt for Pablo Escobar. That then, you know, kind of in Iraq turned into this almost industrial scale production where you know our special operations troops, or you know, SEALs and Rangers and such, went from doing you know about twelve raids a month in two thousand four to two hundred and fifty in two thousand six, right? And those strategies and tactics and, and sort of the way that you marshal intelligence units and direct action units and, and, and you know, types of technology, um, that system for finding and killing people or finding and capturing people, uh, we aided the Colombians in doing the exact same thing um, starting in the mid-2000s. And so, you know, talking about Colombia, you know, was a way of, of looking at U.S. In, influence in one country, but also more broadly, uh, the ways in which America is using power around the world. And the way that, you know, these kind of conflicts sometimes bleed into each other or kind of cross-pollinate. Yeah, and it's pretty hard to make a case. It's been a constructive uh, engagement in Colombia. Uh, we talk about the, the, our longest war. That's been going on for, what, 50 years? Uh, and is there any end in sight? So they signed a peace treaty with the, with the FARC, right. um, which was this big moment. But as, you know, James is talking about, you've still got a bunch of people with guns right. <laughs> and training. Um, and there've been, uh, there's been an up, upsurge in violence since then. And, you know, the, the groups that are doing the killing have different names and, and kind of ideological designations. And there's, you know, kind of talked about more as criminal groups than, you know, it's like communist, uh, get Egypt, but, um, 
but certainly the violence is continuing. And I think this is a real problem, right? We always, you know, as, as America, we oftentimes <laughs> look at these things and we, we'd like to be able to solve it with violence, right? But violence is a very blunt tool. And particularly in a region where, um, you know, and this, this applies to rural sections of Colombia, this applies certainly to, to, to parts of Afghanistan where, you know, the central government doesn't have a lot of control, um, where the primary source of income tends to be illegal sources of income, like the drug trade, um, you know, growing poppy or growing coca. Um, and, and we don't actually have much of a force presence in the region to know what's going on. If you're just kind of, you know, dropping missiles in from time to time or killing people with drones, well, that kind of, you know, reshuffles the deck in terms of who's in charge, but it doesn't make that, that region less violent. Uh, it doesn't bring any kind of stability to the area. Uh, and sometimes, you know, violence makes things a lot worse, right? Iraq, Af Afghanistan, Colombia, what's next for Phil Clive? <laughs> um, uh, I have a book of, of my collected nonfiction, uh, my essays and such coming out next year with Penguin Press. So uh, I've been, you know, writing about these these issues for a long time. Um, and yeah, so that's that's the next thing that'll that'll be out, and I'm slowly working on a new novel. Okay, you James, know, we got two we got two books on our on our reading list now. Right, Take I, over. I do. I'll get up. I, I've worked in 22 different countries, and maybe my favorite is Colombia. I, I don't know why. Mm. I just, I, just there's, there's so many different parts to Wonderful. it. It's just it, and one yeah. of the, uh, and one of my least favorites, not the people, but we, is, is Venezuela. And there's no reason that other than leadership that I can think of and that the difference between Colombia and Venezuela is just staggering. That that's similarly located, you know, kind of thing. And I, I you know, of course, I, I love Santos. I think he's a good hearted guy. All right. I just, you know, when somebody pays me, I, I tend to be very affectionate toward him. Uh, but it. it <laughs> The, what kind of future you see for Colombia? You know, you you thought, think about it a lot. You know, a lot of people. I've been removed from it from some time. How is it going to do? I, you know, I'm I'm a short term pessimist, long term optimist, right? Um, I think that in the wake of the peace peace treaty, um, I. The, the central government's response to the, you know, to the regions where people had demobilized was, uh, was not particularly good. Um, I think that there, you know, there are instances where um, uh, kind of right-wing right -wing elements have been killing trade unionists and, 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 and journalists and lawyers and, and, and human rights activists and all sorts of folks. And, and that that violence is just going to kind of breed further problems, right? Um, and I think that the, you know, it, in the short term, I'm, I'm very, very worried uh, about what that's going to mean for the ability of the country to keep a lid on violence in, in, in some of those more rural areas. Um, but, you know, my hope is that, that, <laughs> that things swing back in another direction. Um, uh, but, you know, it's 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 very difficult. And I think it, you're right. Leadership at the top and a recognition of, um, you know, the 
the complexity of, of what causes instability and violence in a region so that you're not simply you know, trying to, to adopt a brute force approach. You know, I, I interviewed a Colombian colonel, retired Colombian colonel, and this guy, you know, before the peace treaty. And this guy, you know, he was tough as nails, talked about working with these, you know, brutal paramilitary groups, wasn't apologetic about that. He'd gone to the School of Ameri the Americas in the 1980s when all of his instructors were like American Special Forces Vietnam vets. And like, even for this guy, like those instructors, he was like, sus tacticos, un poquito agresivo, you know? Um, but I asked him what was important, you know, going on for, if going forward for Colombia in terms of U.S. support. He said, uh, you know, helicopters, you know, we're a country with jungles and mountains. We need support for helicopters. And he said, uh, human rights stuff, right? Reforming the JAG Corps, um, uh, pushing them on human rights. And at first I thought he knew I was an American and he would say the word human rights and my heart would melt, but that wasn't it at all. Uh, it was totally pragmatic. He said, we need to reform the way the Colombian military deals with human rights because if the peace treaty goes through, we will be operating in areas where we have committed civilian massacres. And if we continue to do that over the long term, it will be very bad for us. We won't be able to control the country. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a soft hearted ethical reason that he wanted um, reform in terms of how the, the military dealt with, with human rights. It was because that was an essential component of being an effective force that was able to maintain some degree of stability in the okay. country. Well, I, uh, you know, I, I just, you uh, short term pessimist, long term optimist, that is the reverse of the way I feel about the United States right now. I'm, I'm a short-term optimist. <laughs> but I, I, hate to, I hate to say that. I hope I'm wrong. I hope, I, I hope I'm wrong on the second count. But I, I think we'll be fine for the next couple of years, and then <laughs> I'm not so sure because <laughs> we're getting tested. But at, at any rate, uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show uh, I, I hope we can elevate your voice because I think it's a, it's a really important one. And I think that you, the combination of one of the books that has always affected me is, I think it's called Goodbye Darkness by William Manchester. It, it was kind of, he was a sergeant in the Marine Corps in World mm. War II. And we need yeah. more people telling more people uh, about war and the horrors of it and been more often than not, the stupidity of it. I'm not. I'm hardly a pacifist, but we've had a bad 21st century in the United States in terms of wars. Really bad. I'm. I am no pacifist either. But if we're going to use military force, you know, we need to get our heads I out of our collective assets first. Well, that's a perfect. That's a perfect way to put it, uh, Phil. And and you really. You have certainly elevated uh, the Carville Hunt reading list, uh, uh, and uh, anybody who has not read Redeployment, uh, they should, and you should join us in reading Missionaries. Uh, and we can't tell you how appreciative we are uh, for you being on this show today, Phil. It's uh, you, you, you really, to win the National Book Award at age 31, uh, I mean, what, what, what did your wife say? Did, did, uh, was she in all of you, Phil? <laughs> It, uh, I, I'm going to tell her that you asked if she was in awe. She'll, she'll find it funny. Um, no, she was. She was. She was delighted. It was. It was. Uh, I. I didn't expect to to win. I didn't even write a, a speech until that morning because I assumed I wasn't going to win. And she was like, "You. You have to write a speech just in case." Um, right. So. As well, soon as I read about you, I said, "We got to get this guy on a goddamn show. Yeah. I, I need to talk to him." <laughs>
Well, I, I, you have been just a terrific guest, and best of luck, and I hope we can stay in touch. Uh, and good luck at uh, good luck at Fairfield. That would be wonderful. Take care, Phil. Thank you. Hey, James, when you don't have free time, you can't read or work on personal development, let me tell you about our ultimate life hack for learning new things and getting ahead. It's an incredible app that solves this problem, and it's called Blinkist. Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. It takes the best key takeaways for busy people like you, collecting them from thousands of nonfiction books and condensing them down into just 15 minutes. There's everything from self-help to business, health, and history, along with the latest titles from the bestseller list and the classic nonfiction titles. You've always meant to read, but you never had time. You've got to get into it, right, James? Are you in or into it? Yeah, I, probably I have the time to read some of this, but why, why would, you know, I, but you can, you know, you can be informed on 10, you know, 10 books as opposed to one. I, I think for for the layperson, uh, of which I'm definitely the Blake describes a, a, like a non-academic, a book reviewer, somebody that makes a living in books. I think it's it's like an invaluable, essential tool. I, 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 and, I, and I think it, the more people that do this, the better educated we're going to be. Because, you know, we got a lot of dumb fucking people in this country. And the more access that they have to knowledge, I don't see where it can hurt. But when you're looking at 48% of the self-described Republicans won't take the vaccine, they, they, they these people should should be they should not have children. They don't need to be infecting the gene pool. All right, there's not much we can do about them. But this is stupidity on a on a level that's unimaginable. Yeah, it so is. It, it, it is. It's also why I favor a vaccine uh, passport. But uh, getting back to Blinkist, two of our recent favorites are there. Uh, sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations by William H. McRaven, and Untrumping America by Dan Pfeiffer. And I think you're going to enjoy both of those. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want and all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash warroom to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash warroom, all one word, to start your free seven-day trial. And you also save 25%, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash warroom. You also can look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, Jim Gerstein, as you well know, is one of America's top Democratic pollsters, the founding partner of GBAO with four other leading polling firms. He led an analysis of what pollsters missed in 2020. You know, polls were really on the mark in Georgia, Arizona, North Carolina, a few other places, but Trump significantly outperformed polls in states. He won Texas and Florida and some he lost like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Jim, thanks for joining us. Uh, and uh, I, I just want to start in both 16 and 20, the polls underestimated Trump, media and political polls. Was there a different issue or problem based on the analysis that you five did this year than there was in 16? And explain. Uh, no. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, guys. It's great to be with you. The There wasn't the, the frustrating part of all of this is there's not one single answer. 
and that each state is kind of different and you see different different dynamics going across. In 2016, we completely saw that we had underestimated the size of the non-college educated population, in particular, the non-college, white non-college educated population. In the past, that hadn't been such a problem, but in 16, there was such a gap between the the voting patterns of the college educated and non-college educated that that led to some of the error. And what pollsters did after that was in 2018, we started weighting the data on college, on education uh, and educational attainment levels. And in 2018, the polling was pretty spot on. Um, and we were all, yeah, we kind of got the results that we were expecting. But in 2020, we had this error again. Uh, and I think you're right in, in introducing it by saying that some states were on target and some states were off. And, but there's, there was a lot of criticism uh, and you know, a lot of it justified, but I also think that we need to figure out how to temper expectations on, on, on the accuracy of, of polling and you know, what, what defines something as being off target or on target. But in 2020, uh, there were some, some big misses that got a lot of attention. And so we kind of went back together with the, uh, to the drawing board to see where the error was and what was driving it. And it was great working with these other pollsters who are uh, other Democratic pollsters that are working uh, across the country on various campaigns. And we're, we came together and collected our data together and are sharing it and doing ongoing discussions and thought it would be a good point to, in time just to put out a memo that says, we don't have the answers yet, but we have some ideas. This is what we're finding. And this is what we're going to try and do about it. Um, and I read that memo, and it seems to me there are two, as you say, there's no answers, but there are two, uh, I think, main theories, at least. One is that maybe some of those uh, usually um, uh, stay-at-home, uh, non-educated white voters uh, don't answer pollsters' questions as well as some others might. But secondly, that they may be, uh, y- y- that Trump may be able to uniquely bring them out. Is, is, is the, are those the two best theories or are there others that are more I mean, relevant? That's at the center of the theory is that while we're getting, you know, after 16, when we did those adjustments that I mentioned on education, we are getting a fairly accurate um, picture of, of the, the demographic picture of what the electorate looks like. I mean, the polls were getting that right in terms of region and race and age and gender and education. But we are missing certain voters. Certain voters, it's not that they're not answering the questions accurately. You know, the, the, the shy or lying Trump voter is that's that's a fiction. But we're but what we're getting is we, we are we're these people are not answering the phone or they're just refusing to take polls. So we're missing a certain segment of the population in certain states, these states that are more rural and more white rural, non-college educated. We're missing certain voters uh, that happen to be low propensity Republican turnout voters who were really brought out by Trump. And that's the leading thing that we have found so far. There's, but like I said, there's other things in, uh, in each state that could be a, a little bit different. But that's the core finding. Um, and it plays out. It, 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 when an election is close, that can be a, yeah, that can be a big problem. Two questions about that, Jim. First of all, um, looking at 18, looking at 20, 16, 
is again, these are only theories. That's all you can have right now. But is your theory is that these low propensity voters aren't likely to turn out if Trump is not on that ballot. As I said, he has a unique ability to bring them out. But secondly, my impression, I think you all touched on this, but in other stuff I've seen, Trump both brought people out and he turned people off in the suburbs and everything. Those people he brought out tended to vote straight Republican down ballot, whereas those people he turned off, a slice of them at least, then went back to ticket splitting or uh, voting for some Republicans. A, is that right? And 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 B, uh, what do Democrats do about it? Right. So uh, the yeah, it, it's it's certainly right, and you can point to it in certain places. But you know, we we Biden won uh, Maine pretty pretty easily, and Susan Collins won Maine pretty easily. You know, the, the, how does that happen? That, that's ticket splitting. Um, now, it, yeah, we didn't see that in every state, but we saw it in, in certain places. Uh, again, I, I, so, you know, your question about what do we do about it? A lot of this is going to be driven by the quality of candidates and the quality of campaigns. And I think, yeah, this, at this point in the game, uh, for looking forward towards 2022, the, 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 one of the most important things is candidate recruitment and getting high quality candidates who, um, don't have voting records that can be torn apart by Republicans. I'm talking about when we're in our challenger races where we're trying to pick up seats. Um, and, and the flip side is that Republicans, as they're challenging Democrats, I mean, you know, we're the ones playing defense right now. We're trying to hold on to the majority as slim as it may be. Um, they're the ones that need to play offense. They've got to get good candidates in these swing districts. They got to be sure that they aren't nominating the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world in a swing district. Um, that that's their challenge. Uh, so, but it's the mixture of, you know, at this point in time, it's, it, what do we do about it? It's, it's good recruitment. It's good campaigns. It's, you know, raising the money early to scare away, uh, good can good challengers on the other side. It's raising money on our side that, um, for our challengers to put them on the spot. Uh, it's, but the campaigns are going to matter. Uh, but at this stage of the campaign, it's it's early, and this is what we were really focusing on. James Carville. All right. One word. Israel. <laughs> Shalom, James. <laughs> I, I thought I'd start, give you an easy one. You know, yeah. what the heck? So, Bibi wants a direct election, I, I read, and he's caught between Bennett and the settlers and the Barrow Party. And get, try to just unpack some of this for us. I, I, yeah. I know we could be here for three hours, but you know more about anybody. So give us, yeah. give us some. Uh, I got to start off by saying the, my favorite campaign I ever worked on was 1999 Ehud Barak with James. Uh, <laughs> it was it was great, and, and Al. That's when I met Al because he came over to to visit and, that's and right. that campaign. I did, I did, uh, and it was a great campaign because we, we felt like we were You're, fighting evil. We were fighting that in Yahoo, and we had an amazing candidate and Ehud Barak, the most decorated soldier in Israeli history, and. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, we good guys on the campaign, too. Yeah. I mean, it was just a fun group of people. Everything was perfect, Jim, except it didn't last. <laughs> it, it was short. It was too short-lived, uh, that's for sure. Um, so what's going on there now? I, mean, I think the starting point is that 13 parties got into the Knesset in this last election. Okay, can you imagine trying? And it, take about 20, it takes about 23% of the vote to be the leading party. Um, but even with so with 23 percent of the vote and trying to cobble together a coalition 
among 13 parties, it's inherently a mess. Uh, if you, this, this, Israel is the poster child for a, a country that needs electoral reform uh, in, a, in a different system. Now, um, within those 13 parties, this is the crazy thing, is you've got so many different constituencies. I mean, you've got, you've got an Arab population, you have Russian immigrants, you've got ultra-Orthodox who come, uh, who are Sephardim or, or Jews who come from Arab countries. You have ultra Orthodox who are Ashkenazim, Jews who come from European countries. You have secular voters. Um, you've got the right wing parties that broke off from Netanyahu because he's corrupt, uh, but they're still right wing. So it's it's a real, you know, it's a real mess. And, and James, I know you love Hebrew. It's a it's a balagan, and Netanyahu, <laughs> yeah, Netanyahu is. Is clever. He's a good politician. I, he's a terrible prime minister, but he's a smart, a smart uh, politician, and he knows. Yeah, he's pitching this direct election of the prime minister idea because he's the biggest. You know, he's the biggest figure on the stage. He's the one that Israelis know, and you know, he's been there a long time. He's the most prime ministerial because he's been prime minister for so long, and his competition, frankly, is pretty weak. And so it's easy for him to say, let's just go to the direct election. It's not going to happen. They, Israel has tried the direct election before. In fact, the campaign that James and I did was a direct election. Um, they got rid of that electoral reform because what it did was it led to this proliferation of so many parties because you could vote for the prime minister and then, and then you could vote for one of your niche parties. Um, so it's, uh, right now he's got another two weeks or so to form a coalition it's unlikely that that's going to happen, but you know, you never say never. After those two weeks, then the president of the country has the uh, can choose to task somebody else with forming the coalition, and we we will see if if he does that or if they go to another election. Um, but the challenge with tasking someone else for the ele- to form the coalition is. The, the leading person there doesn't necessarily have the ability to form the coalition. It will require a lot of strange bedfellows. But there's the one common thing that they have is their per- opposition personally to Netanyahu. So you may get some right-wing parties joining some center-left or left-wing parties just to avoid another election and to remove Netanyahu from office. But it remains, yeah. I would expect the unexpected. <laughs> Well, it's a fa- it's a fascinating place, and it, but it, it it seems the political system seems to be <laughs> in in crisis. But it's always in crisis. <laughs> I mean, it's like you know, uh, just just before we go, you touched on something that's close and dear to me, and that is how important recruiting is in these congressional elections. And you know, I think the Republicans kind of picked our pocket on recruiting in twenty twenty. We had just assumed they had a lot of retirements and we were going to have a good year. And I also uh, have this theory, and you can react to it positive, negatively, or neutrally, that the kind of faculty lounge influence on the language of Democrats just really hurts us in, in, in the rest of the country. And there's got to be some pushback there. It's just not, it's just not the way that people communicate it's it, it's meaningless in some point, some ways that, that that language and you know what I'm talking about, you know the kind of Latinx stuff. It it it's not it's not helpful. It really isn't. And uh, 
did, you know, in my experience with these congressional Democrats is, and, and like, you know, defund the police. I, I have not seen one congressional Democrat that tells me anything other than that was really harmful to the party in 2020. Was that been your experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I share that perspective. Uh, I think that you're, but I, I'd make two key points to that. The, the first is, I don't see many Democrats calling to defund the police, right? It's Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden do not want to defund the police, and nor do 99.9% of the Democratic, Democrats in office. Um, but you're right. We can't get tagged. How, how is it that we can, most Democrats don't want to defund the police, but we can get tagged with it in these swing districts where it's damaging. And, and part of what we can do about it, and this goes to your point, I think we need to be recruiting candidates that speak the language of their constituents and are, are coming. You know, if we're recruiting candidates to run in and uh, some of these districts that we that we narrowly lost, like in in uh, upstate New York or in rural Iowa, or yeah, if we look, we had we had good candidates there. I mean, Brindisi was good, and Abby Fekenauer is a great yeah, great was a great member of Congress. And it, it just these are tough districts, and we need to continue. Like we had those two, while well, we had candidates like that, um, you know, the Abigail Spanbergers and and the Alyssa Slotkins. People like that who really do represent the people physically, or yeah, the, it, and actually they they share the same language, the same values, the same perspective, and are good at campaigning and are good candidates. Um, we need more of them, and you're right. But I don't think we're gonna, I don't think we're gonna end up nominating the faculty lounge candidate in um, in upstate New York. I hope we don't. Um, but we need to be careful uh, or in rural Iowa, or, you know, we, we need to have good candidates who have a record of accomplishment and something that is not a voting record that can get torn apart. But okay. And in, in, I'll, I'll move on. But where you see it is on cable TV. So it's the average person there in that, that, you know, now the, the, so many of the talking heads are promoting faculty lounge politics. You know, Joe Biden is decidedly the non-faculty lounge candidate. And uh, we got a race Saturday in Louisiana. So we know now, almost to a certainty, the most important voting bloc in a Democratic Party are Southern blacks. All right. This second congressional district of Louisiana is a kind of classic. It's two, two, two blacks in a runoff one male, one female. One is decidedly running is more woke. The female, Karen Carter-Peterson. Uh, Troy Carter was on the New Orleans City Council, the State House, the State Senate is a kind of classic. Good, 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 good guy. You know what I mean? And this is going to tell us more than we think. You know, it's obviously going to be a pretty low turnout election. But I, I think there's some real national lessons to be learned Saturday in Louisiana. I really do. Mm-hmm. My observation of what's going on in, in the second district of Louisiana is the money being spent in that election is mm. from the outside parties. The candidates are not on TV. Correct me if I'm wrong, James, but I, I think the candidates themselves are not on TV with their own ads. It's I, all- I, I think Emily's was spent like three I mean, a huge amount. I mean, and Peterson, 
is is outspending Tricarta by a huge amount. I mean, there's a real financial disparity there. And again, this is a low turnout election. You know, who the hell knows what's going to happen? Exactly. That, that That's my point is that yep. the, it's the outside groups that are spending the money in this election. And right. that's, you know, I, I think you have to take that into account in terms of th- this whole issue that you're focused on. And I am, too. And I, I agree with you. But the, the there's a lot of energy from outside groups who influence these elections. And if the uh, Troy Carters of the world lose the you know, what about the outside groups on, on, on that side of the of the equation? They also need to get involved more. You, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But man, like groups like Labor, they're probably you know both of them, both both of the candidates will probably have pretty similar positions on what what I would call the bread and butter democratic groups. But the 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 more woke groups are clearly putting a lot of money in in, in Peterson's campaign, and it, and we got to see what happens on Saturday. But it's a, it's a, in my opinion, it's a much more significant election than people think. I, I, and I, I don't say that just because it's in Louisiana. I say it because I think there's a real lesson to be learned here. Exactly. And, and, and what I'm, I'm just trying to pull out a little nuance right. in it and say there's two right. things. There's voters and how they react to these things, but also it's it's the campaigns and how much money is being spent on which side right. of this equation that in a low turnout right. election is going to impact the turnout right. and the voters and how they're a- reacting to it. Absolutely. And, and again, it's my simple dichotomy. It's the faculty lounge versus the rank and file. <laughs> Jim, let me let, let me just one 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 final Israel question, then a couple more about your <clears throat> analysis. Uh, you talk to people over there all the time. What do people expect about the Netanyahu trial? Uh, I mean, the evidence strikes me as very clear that he's guilty on several counts of corruption. Um but he has this has been dragging out for a long, long time, and it's very, very hard to convict a sitting prime minister. Um, there's just a lot of resistance to uh, there, there's a lot of resistance to it, and there's a, there's a lot of kind of built-ins in the legal system that slow it down, uh, and and for understandable reasons, it's an elected position. But um, uh, but I think that the general sentiment, including among voters, it is he's he's guilty, but we don't, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be convicted. Uh, and we'll wait and see. I mean, it's going to it's just going it's dragged out for years already. Uh, I remember. Yeah, this is the fourth election they've had in two years. Um, and I remember the first couple of elections, they were saying how they couldn't have an election because he was going to trial soon. <laughs> well, he's always going to trial soon. The trial has started. So at least it started. But I, I yeah, I think as we've seen in, in all court cases, you really don't know what's going to happen until, the, until there's a, a decision. But the evidence doesn't, I, I would not want to go to trial with the evidence against, if, uh, against him if I were him. You know, for a country that's so damn accomplished and has so many virtues, they got a screwed up system. They got a screwed up political system. It sounds like the legal system. I, I can't imagine. I mean, these this is, as I say, such an accomplished place. I guess it's just um, there's just too many too many different types. It's 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 a great country. Uh, I have a lot of family in, there, in in Israel. My wife's from Israel. It's it's just a yeah, it's a special place. 
but it's a it's a young it's still kind of a young country. You know, it, was it is founded in 1948. Uh, they kind of had a lot of challenges on the day of their founding in terms of being uh, at war and and in defending the the establishment of the country from day one. Uh, that's yeah, it leads to a little bit of a building the airplane while it's flying kind of kind of mentality and and in in practice. But they'll. Uh, uh, but you're right. They've done. It's a country that's had amazing accomplishments. And uh, well, maybe your your right point. Now. Maybe maybe we shouldn't forget that 70 years after we were founded, we had a civil war. <laughs> right. So um, um, you know, let's maybe maybe we need to cut them some slack. Jim, let me let me ask you this because you have spent uh, a lot of time on North Carolina campaigns. My wife and I both went to college down there. Our son did too. What does it take? to turn North Carolina more purple-blue? I mean, Georgia has more blacks, I know, but at least prior to this election, you thought maybe North Carolina was a little bit more. So we've, we've kept going in your absence, so you can just join, James. So what does it take to turn North Carolina more purple-blue? Why, why so disappointing last time? Right. I mean, it's, it's, certainly, it's, it's truly a purple state. You know, it's, it's, yeah. you know Obama won it one year, uh, and... You know, Trump won it both. You know, both times he ran. Uh, I, I, yeah. You got to wonder what the outcome would have been had Cal Cunningham not had a massive scandal down the stretch. Uh, that didn't help. That's yeah. When you're mapping out your campaign, you you're not you're not you're not necessarily planning to do that. Um, yes. But uh, so I I think. It, it's a great question, Al, but I, I think so much of this comes down to what, what James is raising, what we've been talking about, like candidate quality and mm-hmm. and campaign quality. And, you know, it's, it, in these razor-thin ra- uh, races, every little thing makes a difference. And uh, whether, you know, from turnout to a, 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 a sex scandal to whatever, it is, every, everything's going to make a difference when the margins are so thin. Um, Jim, but I'm, I'm going to turn it back to James. But first, let me ask you this. Put on the other guy's shoes for a minute. Suppose you were advising Republicans. I mean, just, you know, temporarily, you know, suspend the horror of all that. And what would you tell them for 2022 when they don't have Trump on the ballot mm-hmm. uh, and how they both embrace uh, those 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 voters who only turned out for Trump uh, and maybe do a little bit better in the suburban type areas. Yeah, I, I think they are in a bind. I mean, we, we can talk more about the challenges for Democrats in 2022 with redistricting and all that. But but if I were a Republican strategist, strategist you know, A, you got to make sure you don't nominate the, 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 the crazies in the swing districts and in right. the swing states. And that's, that's going to be a challenge for them. Um, and I think... Uh, yeah, it, it will be hard for them to generate the same kind of energy without Trump on the ballot. But they're 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 the opposition party. The opposition party is typically generating its energy by attacking the the the, pre, the, the incumbent president. And if Biden continues to do well and do what he's doing, uh, I think it makes it much harder for them. Obviously, and they're gonna you know. But they're so in the absence of a a stumble on the economy of. Uh, yeah, you know, or or the COVID vaccine distribution, you know, all the things that are going well for Democrats and Biden right now, absent a change in that, yeah, you know, the Republicans are going to go culture war, and I, yeah, you know, they whether that's going to be successful for them or not, 
I don't know. It's going to depend a lot, like, like I said, on their candidates. It's going to depend on the Democratic campaigns. Are we able to hold those suburban are we able to activate our suburban voters who we've, who've been putting us in office the last couple of elections? I think we've got, well, we'll probably have a very strong case to be made uh, if, if Biden continues on the trajectory he's on. Uh, but we even talk about redistricting. I mean, that's going to be, redistricting is going to be tough. It's, it's, it's nuanced. Yeah, there are, we have to remember, there, the Republicans are going to probably lose a district in West Virginia. So that's, yeah, but at the same time, they're picking up three seats probably in Texas. Um, now how they map that out, how the, how the, that, that, how they gerrymander it is going to, is going to determine a lot of this, but it's not necessary. You know, it hurts us, but it's not good. It, but we may not get hurt as badly as, as, uh, as you may think just purely on redistricting. James, you know, when it comes to the culture war, there's somebody who's AWOL, and I am delighted that they're AWOL, and I hope they stay that way, and that is President Joseph R. Biden. All right, he does not, he very smartly, and I, I, just knowing him, he's, that's not, that's not his motivation. All right, he's a, he's definitely not hanging out in the faculty lounge. And that, and I think there's a real lesson for Democrats here. And, and, you know, the other person that is not there is the Speaker of the House of Representatives. All right. And, and that, that there's, because there's no, of course, we're going to be the party of inclusion and everything. Just do it. And then let them talk about that. All right. But it, 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 it doesn't need, to be engaged. And I, but what worries me is, you know, the President Biden and Speaker Pelosi are, are not what you would call spring chickens here. And, it, you know, where uh, hopefully the talent that emerges post Biden Pelosi will have learned the lesson by then. But it, it does worry me going forward. I, mean, I think when you look at that next layer of leadership in the House and, and even the Senate, it's it's good. It's really good. You know, Hakeem Jeffries and uh, Hakeem's great. Yeah. Clark. I mean, there's a lot of good people. I, I, I think we often, as you pointed out, yeah, there's all this cable news punditry and, and noise. That is not reflective of the Democratic leadership and the upcoming Democratic leadership. Uh, but it's hard. Yeah. And it's not, you know, I, you have told me and any number of people have done some focus groups in rural areas, and people just think that we're an urban party. And there's a large part of the United States that doesn't even consider that, that well, that's for the people in Chicago or, or you know, or New Orleans or Philadelphia. You, you name it, you name it. And we have got to, you know, stop this. And I give the people, the current people in, in power a, a, a lot of credit. I, I just hope that we have a, a year or kind of year in 2022 that validates that. That, that's that's my overall point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I've noticed in focus groups, too, that when people feel that they're being talked down to, they generally don't want to vote for you. They don't like it. And if they're told that the schools they went to are not good, all right, or, you know, if they're told that we, we, we should, you know, defer to the elite, people don't like that. Right. They just don't like it, and it doesn't work. And yet, somehow or another, a certain part of this party keeps promoting that shit, and they get heard by people. Thank God for, for President Biden and 
I hope this recovery keeps going. <laughs> Jim, I'd throw in just one cautionary note. I agree they're very, very bright up-and-coming Democrats in the House, but Pelosi is Pelosi, and I have watched the House for many, many years, never, and I'm a great admirer of Tip O'Neill, never seen a speaker who can work the kind of political magic she can. And uh, if they come in with a slim majority next time, it's going to be a challenge for Hakeem Jeffries, whoever uh, is the next speaker, assuming she doesn't decide to run again, to replicate that. Her talents are, I think, they're enormous, and they're not even fully appreciated. Oh, God. I remember, you know, when Pelosi was there, you know, the San Francisco Pelosi, and I'd get, like, speeches. I'd get asked about it. So let me say something. I wish my daughters would grow up to be like Nancy Pelosi, all right? Yeah. Not only I'm going to defend her, I, I think in, at, at about every level you can be, she's one of the most exemplary people in, in, the, United, in the United States politics. And I've always felt that way. And, you know, I'm... Broken clock is right twice a day. This is one I got right. Yeah, she's a Delisandro <laughs> as well as a Pelosi, and uh, for uh, she, she's just it's it's incredible to keep that caucus together, Jim, as she did throughout the Trump years, and as she has this year. It's I mean Abigail Spanberger uh, and the squad don't have a lot in common, and uh, she is she's magical. She's she's. Yeah, she's amazing. She'll go down as one of the all-time great speakers. She, yeah, she she won the speakership. Then they lost it, and then she came back and won again. I mean, it's it. She is. You're right on every every count. You're right. I think you look at what Schumer's doing too. He's got quite a bit of ideological diversity in his caucus as well, uh, and he and his margin is. It, it's hard to believe it's, that it's possible to have a smaller margin than what we have in the House, but we have a smaller margin in the Senate, and he's right. yeah. back together. His margin is Joe Manchin. He's, <laughs> it's it's it, that simple. You know, it's interesting because prior to 2018, when the Democrats took back the House, there was a lot of angst among some Democrats. Do we want to keep Pelosi? Shouldn't we? Isn't it time for a change now? If the Democrats keep the House and the Speaker does not run for speaker again, I guarantee you that in, in October of 2022 or December, all of the angst and anxiety is, my God, what do we do without Pelosi? I, I hope she stays, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you look at the challenges that we're going to be facing in 2022, historical challenge, redistricting, it, it does help us that we've got Biden and Pelosi and Schumer there kind of driving the overall agenda. I think that helps a lot in terms of keeping, one, passing important legislation as we did with the American Rescue Plan, as they're trying to do with uh, infrastructure, but also avoiding trying to not take the bait on the culture wars and, and to you know, handle things the way that they're handling it. It's, that, that's a plus in the, of, of the challenges of the, of the liabilities and, and, and assets that we have going into 2022. Having the three of them there is a, is a major asset, I believe. You know, you know, in West Virginia, I don't think Democrats have carried a county since 2008. All right. And the, the faculty lounge answer to Joe Manchin is to primary him <laughs> or to go. To, I, 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 I'm, I'm serious. When you do look how goddamn stupid these people are. And, 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 you know, of course, it doesn't affect Schumer or Pelosi, but it affects a certain part of the commentariat. And other people hear that stupidity. Right, and and I'm I'm just talking. I'm a late life, some kind of jihad against this kind of stuff. Well, you and I, we've been talking about this 
but since you know the late nineties, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just it, it it's destructive and it's harmful, and hopefully you know that that we'll learn our lesson. I can't tell you I'm optimistic, but at any no. rate, it was. It was just a great we learned, we did learn a lot from Jim Gerstein today. That analysis is really interesting. It's very instructive. Uh, you know, as we look ahead, uh, I um, I hope you can get to Israel at some point, Jim. Although I wouldn't be terribly optimistic, and I hope you can uh, can carry in 2022 North Carolina among other states. Thank you, Jim Gerstein. You're a terrific guest. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. Okay, James, now for our favorite segment, the questions, or one of our favorite segments. Carl in southern Thailand. I love our global reach, James Carville. He says, now the United States. I love Thailand, too. God damn, I've been there. That's a wonderful place. It's the Italy of Asia. It's those people have more fun, and the food is terrific. I couldn't agree with you more. Now that the United States is scheduled to leave Afghanistan for good in September, Carl asks, shouldn't we finally close Guantanamo Bay and release the last remaining prisoners? Can Biden make it happen? And why has it not been discussed? Well, uh, I I will address Afghanistan and the outrage. I I think that what happens is, is that they said, well, we could do that, but there's some chance that one of them would come back and do something. And then, of course, would you imagine if Biden closed Guantanamo and and then somebody that was there, I don't know, you know, shot some, shot up a bunch of people in a mall or whatever happened, what, what Fox News would do to that. And, and I think so much of decision-making is just avoid the worst-case scenario. But I, I, I the, the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war were, Guantanamo is, is just an extension of the massive fuck-up in the United States foreign policy in the 21st century. Well, Biden says he's going to close Guantanamo. Of course, Obama said it too, uh, and he ought to. James, it costs, the cost to you and me and American taxpayers per prisoner, this is per prisoner, is $13 million a year. And there is reason to believe there may be some people there who uh, are not, not guilty of what they are charged with. There have been in the past. We may need, we do need to find a place for some of those people. Uh, The Republicans have always resisted putting them in any uh, maximum security prisons in the United States, maybe other countries. But Guantanamo is a stain, uh, and I hope Biden's successful uh, in uh, in closing it down this year. Compared to these jackass wars, it's a a barely a stain. Well, it is, but it's still, it's a reminder uh, of how bad it is, and people's liberties have been denied. It's just, it's awful. Danielle in Westchester, New York, says, if you interview 10 people in the street and ask what is broadband, eight of them won't know. If you ask what is high-speed Internet, everyone will know. Can you please tell Biden and the other Democrats to stop calling it broadband? It will help get high-speed Internet into the infrastructure bill. You know, Danielle, you're right. Uh, And uh, I think that this is Washington jargons uh, are hard, uh, hard to change. Uh, that's, I think, one of the more benign ones. Probably be better to call it high, high speed. I have others that drive me crazy. My, my, my favorite awful Washington and untrue and fictional Washington jargon is the death tax. 
No one who's dead gets taxed. I mean, if you're dead, you can't get taxed. What the death tax is, it's money that's never been taxed, almost all of unrealized capital gains that goes to rich heirs. It's a fluent action for rich heirs. But that's Washington. Uh, we just love jargons. James? You know, I, I wish you were, I don't know, one of my students, maybe I wish you were my teacher. Because I just, like, scream about simple language being the most effective language. And I would recommend to everybody to listen to George Carlin on language, about how we sanitize everything. And, and, and people, it, it, jargon is the enemy of everyone. It, it's like, again, I go back to the faculty lounge, Latinx. It was like, what are they talking? Even no one even uses the word, all right? They just don't. And, and she's exactly right, high-speed internet. And I think, by the way, but for some time, it may not still be true. You know what the leader, what city was the leader in high-speed internet? Chattanooga. Chattanooga had put in more high-speed internet. And I, did, I read this four or five years ago. It's probably still remotely true. But, and she's exactly right. And we should use it. And one of the things I really like about President Biden, he, he generally does not lapse into jargon. And, and the point she made, I think, is just brilliant. It's one I so agree with. No, you know, I absolutely agree with. Uh, James, we, we keep getting questions and good questions on Florida uh, and, and, the, and the plight of Florida Democrats. Valerie in, in uh, Vancouver, California, and Charlie in Lakeland, Florida. Say, you know, you're, you've noted a number of times that Florida proves the $15 minimum wage in the ballot and 64% say felons should be able to vote, then why can't Democrats get candidates, and I'm going to quote Charlie, to defeat DeSantis, Rubio, the perv, Matt Gatz, uh, and the Medicare fraud, Rick Scott? They're not even close in Florida. Why can't they get good candidates? Well, first of all, we're not going to win Florida's first congressional district. Okay, I, that, that just, we're, we're not players there. But next point I would make is I totally agree with you. And I beat my head against the wall because there's nothing, and my point is, there's nothing wrong with the underlying philosophy of a majority of the people that live in Florida. There's something wrong with the kind of campaigns that we run, and there's something wrong with the candidates that we traditionally put up. And in order for that to change, Florida Democrats are going to have to get a hold of themselves and do what National Democrats did in 2018, and that is run relevant campaigns with diverse and, and really qualified candidates. And if you do that, you're going to do a lot better. And I, 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 I really concur that there's something wrong in Florida. We should do better than we do. And clearly, the, the, the plan is not to abandon Florida in frustration, but to figure out what went wrong. Um, I agree. Uh, uh, they got to figure out what it's terrible. It's a very weak Democratic Party, uh, and they ought to get candidates. I, you're not going to win that first district, but you could certainly give Rubio a contest, and you better give DeSantis a contest because he has now become the darling of the right-wing Trump press. And uh, if he's not seriously challenged in 2022, that's a huge lost opportunity. Brian in Port Washington, New York. We got, you know, great 
variety of questions, James. He said, I wonder about your thoughts about movies. What political movies do you recommend? Any for the past year? Uh, what type of storylines? I guess my favorite political movie of all time is Dr. Strangelove. I just, I, I've watched <laughs> it four or five times. I, 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 it's wonderful. I, and we're talking about pure political movies. Um, I loved, uh, I love Wag the Dog. I thought that was a, a, a good movie. I don't know if Citizen Kane is considered a political movie. He did run for politics. Uh, and this is not a political movie, but I've now watched it twice during this isolation. George Stevens, our friend George Stevens' dad uh, uh, on Giant in 1956, it is a pro, uh, pro-feminist and pro-Mexican immigrant movie that was done 65 years ago. And uh, James, I'm sure you have some others. Right. I, I have, uh, first of all, Dr. Strangelove is like one of the greatest movies ever made, but uh, it, it loses out is my favorite political movie of all time. My favorite political movie of all time is the Lincoln Steven Spielberg movie. You're, yes, and it, it was pure that. politics, all right? It was how hard it was to get the 13th Amendment through the Congress. And I, I don't think that's one of the great political movies of all time. I think it's one of the great movies of any kind of all time. And, and I wish that people... And I don't have anything against idealism because it's okay, all right? But I wish all of these people that want to march into the, you know, progressive, you know, inclusive future would see just how difficult politics is. And politics is a great word, and that is a great description of of that film, and it was a courageous thing to do to make a movie about a single thing in a difficulty. I, I love that movie. Boy, I did too. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is Kenneth James. And Kenneth says, first, because I know that Al will be apoplectic. If I don't remember to say this, I'm from Wilmette, Illinois. Yay, Kenneth. <laughs> My college roommate, Brent Starkham, yeah. yeah. tragically passes from Wilmette. He, he went to Loyola. I guess he went to Nutria. <laughs> Kenneth asks, he says, you've had on your show many guests who are either never Trump Republicans or fully ex-Republicans, people with whom I would disagree a lot on policy but share a basic respect for truth, decency, and democracy. And I'm glad they've said enough is enough. But don't you think some acknowledgement is warranted from them about the sins of the past they participated in? Oh, God, why did you really? I, I, the, the single beneficiary of Trump, as much as anybody else, has been George W. Bush and all of the, the people around him. Right? They, they made, you know, a lot of, the Bush people have become anti-Trump people, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for their support. But, man, they made some mistakes back there. Woo! <laughs> we talked about, you know, we talked about some of that with Phil Clyde. Right, right, right. But I, I think the, my friend from Wilmette uh, makes a, a, a very good and very telling point. This has been a not very good century, again, I go back to it, for U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they... There were some other mistakes, too. I, I, I like, uh, like our friend from Wilmette, admire the fact that they're speaking out uh, against Trump, but uh, I still have problems. The war policies were terrible, and some of their economic policies, the tax cuts for the rich were terrible. But, uh, you know, let's, let's be thankful that they're now speaking out. Um, James, uh, I think the next question is, is from Al. i got to answer a question if it's from Al. From the Big Island of Hawaii. 
<clears throat> he said, what tactics would actually work to get rid of the anachronistic and non-democratic president, presidential electoral college? The PBS NewsHour, boy, how you got great taste in uh, what you watch, said there had been 70 attempts over the year to get rid of it and all have failed. <clears throat> so will the 71st, so will the 72nd. Uh, I don't, <clears throat> I empathize with your point, Al. It's not going to change. Well, that there is a vehicle that it could, and that's the uh, Electoral College where, in, I think Maryland was the first, where the state legislature directs the electors to vote for whoever wins the popular vote. And it only becomes operative when states that total 270 votes pass this. It, there's some question, but a reasonable chance to pass constitutional muster. But there's a way to uh, abolish the Electoral College. A friend of mine in San Francisco uh, started it, and, and you can look at it, but there is a potential way to circumvent a constitutional amendment, to change it. And I think that's very important for people to keep in mind. Yeah, my theory would be if you went that route, there's no way the Georgia legislature would not have concluded that Donald Trump won Georgia. <clears throat> I have real, I, I have real problems right. in putting that in the hands of state legislatures. I, 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 again, it's just it's an idea, but I think people are entitled to know that that idea is out there. Yeah, they are. And, and people, James, you know, we do well in Thailand, but we really do well in Florida too. Nancy in Hollywood, Florida, says that you have talked about how awful the phrase "defund the police" is, and it is. Uh, but we need to make policing accountable in this country. You know, how do we do that and how do we message that? Oh, boy, what a great question. I mean, well, first of all, I think we had a start yesterday, right? And mm-hmm. I, uh, secondly, I actually think that if we took the money that the police spend breaking up marital disputes and dealing with mental health and all of the other crap that, that they deal with and, and put that money into screening, right? Uh, you're kind of a national rest because, of course, what happens is our friend William Woodson on our Sunday call pointed out to us that somebody gets in trouble and they own the, you know, Covington, Louisiana police force, and then they just get hired by the Lafayette, Louisiana police force. And that is a, a, a you know, you need to screen these police officers very differently and you need to really train them. But this is what makes me a little bit of the pessimist about policing is, and, and the military, too. Is if, if people are right, and our friend Roger Altman and other people say that the next two, three years are going to be really booming and the labor market is going to be really tight. When you have a tight labor market, that downwardly affects the number of people who want to work in public safety at the military. But when you're in the middle of a recession... Uh, you're 18, a 20-year-old, said, well, I'm going to get three hots in the cot. <laughs> All right? Maybe there's a place for me. If, I, if, 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 they, if you have a tight labor market and wages are going up, you could, the recruiting is going to, the quality of the recruit is necessarily going to go down. And we'll probably need more women in policing. Uh, but there's no, in terms of racial inclusion, I mean, maybe the most integrated institution in the United States is high-end policing in urban areas. And that's got to be translated more into downrank, I think. But it's a thoughtful question. It's a difficult issue. It obviously touches people, and obviously and appropriately, 
in very personal ways. But we're not going to abolish the police at all. We're not even it's not even on that's not a serious position to take. I don't think. But the fact that we can't substantially improve it is I, I don't buy that at all either. Yeah, well, of course, it's not a serious uh, proposition. And we can improve it, except it's hard. There are examples. People cite Camden, New Jersey all the time. And, and, and uh, James, you, you know, cops should not be involved in some of those minor issues that could be better solved by others. And that's not defunding the police. That is reshaping, reoriented, reprioritizing uh, police. And frankly, you ought to pay cops more. And uh, so there's a lot of things that need to be done. I, I think it's going to be a slow process. Now for our outrages of the week. There's so many choices, James. You know, I'm not an ethical fundamentalist on those in public office using staff for some matters that blur the official and the personal, making lunch reservations or travel or a ride, uh, you know, to and from uh, the office. But former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and his wife went well beyond that, viewing government employees as their personal fiefdom. They sent State Department employees to drop or pick up their dog, to arrange a hotel discount for their son's hotel, to use government funds to buy gifts for people who had private dinner parties for the Pompeos. All of this was unethical and inexcusably arrogant, some of it perhaps even illegal. If the secretary was too busy to pick up his dog, which he may well have been, he's got a big job, why not his wife, Susan? When asked, Pompeo praised her as a selfless volunteer for the country who serves without pay. Those virtues did not extend to commandeering government officials paid by the taxpayers as errand boys or errand girls. Pompeo wants to run for president in 2024, no doubt as a Trump populist. Let's remind voters then that this is the way he treats the people. Yes, and they're very... He, they're very pompous. If I had to get one, one word to describe Pompeo, it'd be pompous. And the wife seems to be very pompous, too. And that was a good outrage. And it's James, outrage. Also, also, let me just say, I'm going to get to you, but beware of people who graduate first in their class from West Point. It usually doesn't have a good result. You know, uh, a lot of these elite schools are having a bad a bad time right now, but in terms of some of the people that, you know, Peter Navarro, <laughs> but this is the outrage of the century. And I talked up, we talked about it with Phil. We just lost the war. Okay. We lost a fucking war. And that's just, we're 0 for 2 in this century. And there's no, you talk about a lack of accountability. Oh my God. The only guy that I know that lost a job in Afghanistan was Stanley McChrystal, who was probably the most competent person to ever serve there. And everybody wants to forget about this. Everybody wants to act like it didn't happen. All right? You can't... Please read Steve Carl, who's one of... I think it was in the New Yorker, I read it. But everybody understand, we have lost two wars in the 21st century that at one time or another have drawn enormous support from many people in the foreign policy, military, industrial, high-end complex. And somebody needs to get their ass fired here. 
or there's got to be some accountability because I don't think I don't th- I don't think journalism is going to bring that kind of accountability. I, I, I hope somebody in, in, the, in the United States Congress starts asking some hard questions here. But it's not time to move on. It's time to figure out what went wrong and how we don't have a colossal fuck up like this in the future. And I have no confidence that anybody is taking any measure to ensure that something like this never happens again, because it has been a bad, bad century for United States foreign policy and the United States armed forces. I could not agree more. And let me tell you, in my, not my lifetime, because I was born as World War II was still going on, the one conflict which I think was well conducted was the first Iraq war, where basically Iraq invaded another country. President George H.W. Bush put together a global alliance. He sent a massive force in there. They did their job and they came home. And uh, that's a lesson that we haven't learned. And and tragedy has ensued. That, but that is true. Then we did. To be fair, the, the intervention in the Balkans produced no casualties. It got rid of an international mass murderer. Okay, yeah, but that was but, a, that was but, that was but, not but, sending but, troops in. I mean, that, that I, I was understand, fine. But, I mean, but, but, yeah, but you know. I, I understand. Iraq- and, 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 you can't get credit. That, that's kind of my, my beef. Unless you're a wartime president, oh, you didn't send troops in. Yeah. Maybe that, that that there's something to be said for that. Yeah. All right. Maybe there's something to be said for that. Well, I don't know. Maybe, I guess we call George H.W. Bush a wartime president. He just did it well. I did. Well, he did it uh, well. I, 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 yeah. I agree yeah. in Baker. And yeah. I, 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 I don't yeah. have any, in, in, right. any issue with that. But this been, this been a, that was a long time ago. It was. And we <laughs> we're just not, we, didn't, we have not gotten it done, and we're not getting it done. And the faster we realize this, the better off we're going to be. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we really would appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsor, Blinkist. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review, and we'll be back next week with another program as we continue our War Room planning.